0: Welcome to the Let's Talk podcast. I'm Carrie Lloyd Shaw, Christian blogger, wife and mum, muser, and grace lover. I write and chat about a broad range of biblical subjects, deeply rooted in and flowing from this focused centre that one man died for everyone. I believe that it's this truth about Jesus that makes our hope as Christians visible to others, as part of a collective worldwide community of faith, the Church of Jesus Christ. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram. And, if you're a word nerd like me, you can check out my latest blog articles by heading on over to the website, carrylloydshaw.com. Right now, though, let's talk. Scripture tells of a crowded family home in a bustling ancestral town, set at the southern end of the Judean hills. Filled to the brim already, perhaps with relatives from both near and far, There was no room in the guest quarters for the additional arrival of a heavily pregnant Mary accompanied by her fiancé Joseph. Exhausted from the arduous travel to Bethlehem, necessitated by the tax decree from Caesar Augustus, Mary and Joseph found space in the ground-floor family room, with Joseph's extended family, a comfortable, homely room filled with hollows of straw and where the animals also slept and fed. Surrounded by family and labouring in a crowded, warm Israeli home like many other women before her, Mary gave birth to her first child, a son. His name was to be Jesus, meaning Yahweh will save, and he was born to save his people from their sins. It was an important and necessary reality that Jesus shared in our humanity, a connection which he derived from his mother Mary. His redemptive work on behalf of humanity was deeply connected to his own humanity. His ability to sympathize with us and to reconcile on our behalf springs from a complete understanding of what it is like to be human with all our doubts, fears, temptations and failures. He understood humans because he was human. The story of his birth impresses upon us just how similar he was to us in every way even to the unremarkable ordinariness of his birth. Like countless babies before him, he was born surrounded by noise and bustle, sweat, blood and tears. Relatives would have crowded around to proudly admire what was assumed to be Joseph's firstborn son. Mary would have comforted the newborn's hungry cries by pressing him closely to her breast. His arrival was, on one hand, a thoroughly human affair, recognisable the world over. Christian writer Lucy Peppiat has this to say. There are three creation stories of the creation of humanity in the Bible. The first is that humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. The second is that a human is formed from the dust of the earth, and the woman is taken from man. She is flesh of his flesh. The third is that humanity is reborn through a Saviour, who is born of a woman, and he is flesh of her flesh. Jesus is made of her, not just in her. He is made from her, and not just through her. How else could Jesus be connected to the line of David, King of Israel, through Mary, unless the baby was truly hers, albeit born of the Spirit? This physical connection to Mary is the basis of the story of salvation, the proof that our own flesh, our souls and bodies can be redeemed and cleansed and resurrected. Yet despite the seemingly unremarkable circumstances of his birth, God was in fact doing something completely remarkable and unique in and through this child. This newborn babe was the Word made flesh, God with us, and his birth was an event that would change the course of human history forever. When God originally created this world and the humans that inhabit it, he did so with purpose and intentionality. He wanted humanity to choose to walk with Him, to want to be like Him, and to partner with Him in His glorious mission to fill the earth with His glory. Yet much of the Bible is a repetitive narrative of human failure, telling over and over again of the inability of humans to live as the perfect image-bearers that God had intended. Disobedience of God's directive in the very beginning and the first act of sin in the world brought about its awful consequence for humanity a sentence of death and being sent from God's presence in shame and disappointment. Instead of beauty, the first humans received a crown of ashes, and instead of joy, they experienced loss and mourning. Not only this, the spiritual heart of humanity became darkened and sick, in desperate need of healing and regeneration. Humanity died that day, not physically or immediately, but spiritually our union with God was severed, and we became separated from God's presence. Seeking our own will, at the expense of God's glory, we were incapable of living the glorious life he had intended for us. And, just as we have inherited physical life from our parents, so too we have inherited spiritual death. Paul in Ephesians teaches that this is the state of every person before they are made alive in Christ. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 2 says this, And you he made alive when you were spiritually dead and separated from him because of your transgressions and sins in which you once walked. We were, by nature, children under the sentence of God's wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Christian writer N.T. Wright has this to say, Made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamour for vengeance. Made for relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we are satisfied with sentiment. Paul in Romans 7 verse 8 makes this comment. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 affirms that the heart of humanity is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it, he asks. Ecclesiastes, one of the wisdom books of the Old Testament, makes this comment in chapter 9 verse 3, where the writer says, There is an evil in everything that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. Furthermore, the hearts of humanity are full of evil and madness while they are alive, and afterward, they join the dead. Every human who was born comes into this world physically alive but spiritually dead. Without our spiritual connection with God, we are nothing more than dead men walking, living in darkness and far from the eternal life God intended for us. But God, in His infinite love, did not leave anything to chance in His plan of saving and redeeming humanity. Despite human failure and many, many detours in this story, God has declared that his purpose will not be thwarted. He says in Isaiah 46:10, 10, My purpose will stand, and all my good pleasure I will accomplish. He will accomplish what he intended for his creation, even to his own personal cost, as it turns out. Jesus was born to save his people from their sins, to break the power of death, and to reconcile all of humanity back to God. Yet no ordinary human could possibly have achieved this remarkable feat. The child of both a human father and a human mother would have resulted in the kind of human we see around us every day, and indeed within our own selves, a person who is subject to the ravaging effects of sin, and governed by a heart that is, in its deepest recesses, at enmity with God. This kind of human couldn't possibly have overcome sin or lived without fault as God's perfect image-bearer. Nor could this kind of human have defeated the power of death by virtue of living a sinless life, perfectly obeying God's moral law. Jesus was human, born of a human mother. However, prophecies that spoke of the coming Saviour made it clear that he was to be born of a virgin, with no human father involved in his conception. Instead, the Holy Spirit moved, and, in the same way that creation sprang into being at God's command, so too it was the animating force for the conception of God's Son. God said, and it was so. John, the author of the fourth Gospel account in the New Testament, deliberately parallels the Genesis account when beginning his record of this pivotal and distinctly unique moment in human history the arrival of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He tells us that in the beginning was the word, Logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The use of the Greek word Logos here is frustratingly difficult to adequately convey in English by a single word. Literally meaning, I say, it's not used for a word in the grammatical sense. The term Lexis would have been used in that instance. However, both Logos and Lexus derive from the same verb, lego, meaning I count, tell, say, or speak. John says in his first chapter at verse 14 that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word and all that is contained by the expression became human and dwelt among us. He was God with us. Anyone who saw him saw all the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being and the imprint of his nature. Paul the Apostle makes further comment in Philippians 2 verses 6-7 through where he says that Jesus, who was in the very nature of God, emptied himself and took the form of the servant, made in the likeness of humans that sin. He comments elsewhere in Romans 8 verse 3, where he says, The law of Moses was unable to save us, because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us, by giving his Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus became the representative of us all, and in his human body, the war against sin and death would be waged and won. All of human history had been leading up to this moment, when creation would be reconciled and redeemed back to God, and to the purpose for which it had been created. Through his human descent, Jesus was connected to us all, right back to the Garden of Eden. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45 tells us that what was done by one, to the detriment of us all, would be reversed in another, the second Adam, who was to be a life-giving spirit. Other places in Scripture, particularly the writings of Paul the Apostle, affirm that the revelation of God's original plan of creation, the redeeming, recreating and reordering of all things, together with the reconciliation of creation to its Creator, all find their true and most meaningful significance in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. The invisible God was now revealing himself visibly through his Word made flesh, in whose hands the world and all that is therein has been placed. In Jesus Christ, we find the reasons for truth and life. In him, we find the source of life and the light of humanity, the light that shines in the darkest places of the human heart, bringing peace to the chaos and creating order and beauty again. In the unique person of Jesus, God was doing a completely new thing, bringing about a new creation and restoring again the hearts of humanity to a whole relationship with him. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says this, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus was both the son of a human mother and the son of a divine father, the human and the divine embodied within the one individual. He was born specifically and uniquely, after centuries of human failure, that, in him, the Creator might redeem his creation. He was the Word made flesh, the one and only of his kind, a man, but not merely a man and as Colossians 2 verse 9 tells us, in him the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily. Theologians have deliberated about this seemingly impossible reality for centuries. As early as 300 years after Jesus' birth, a council of Christian bishops convened in the city of Nicaea, now known as the town of Iznik, in modern-day Turkey, to decide on the long-standing theological debate regarding the nature of Jesus and his relationship to God. Settlement of the debate was effected by the creation of the Nicene Creed, a statement of beliefs now widely used in Christian liturgy. With the creation of the Creed, a precedent was established for subsequent local and regional councils of bishops to create statements of belief and canons of doctrinal orthodoxy. The intention was to define unity of beliefs for the whole of Christendom. And yet, the arguments still rage today. Dialogue tends to grapple with the how, focusing on the need to fully explain and document in what way the person of Jesus was the Word made flesh. And the answer to this is perhaps well outside our pay grade. Quite often, the miraculous reality is lost in the foray of dogmatic contention. What is often also lost is an acknowledgement and rejoicing in the why. That only the Word made flesh could truly and completely redeem humanity. Only God stepping personally into the drama and chaos of humanity through the sending of His Son could solve the dilemma of sin and death that we all share in. And this miracle of redemption and rescue was achieved through God's only Son, both human and divine. 1 John 1, verses 1 through 2, tell us this That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. As Paul comments in 1 Timothy 3 verse 16, God appeared in the flesh. The glory of God had been revealed, as prophesied by Isaiah so long ago. We read in Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 5 and 9 and 10, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Who we are as individuals is derived from both genetic predisposition, nature, and environmental factors, nurture. The reference to nature is the idea that human behaviour can be considered to be the result of pre-wiring information or characteristics that are determined by our genes. These biological factors influence our predisposition to certain traits and behaviours and are determined at a gene level over which we have no personal ability to control. The reference to nurture relates to the idea that the environment a person is exposed to, either prenatally or during a person's life, will influence and affect the development and psychology of an individual and therefore their resulting behaviours and traits. Studies conducted in the 20th century on twins who had been separated at birth concluded that human behavioural development is affected by both nature and nurture, both an individual's natural disposition and the environment in which they are raised. When we consider the impact of this in relation to Jesus, both Son of Mary and Son of God, at once human and divine, we understand certain passages of scripture in a new light and are amazed at the mastery of God in relation to the remarkable reality of his Son. Firstly, the genealogy of Jesus is important. It's one of the first things that the Gospel of Luke makes known, that is, the genetic origins of the one who is to be called the Christ. In Luke 1 verse 28 and verses 47 through 55, we are told this, that he was born to a young woman, descended from the family of the great King David, a woman favoured of the Lord and deeply devout and spiritual in her faith. In Matthew 1 verses 18 through 19, we're told more about Joseph, the man who would become his earthly adoptive father. We're told that he was also a good man, honourable, faithful and generous-hearted. Joseph was not willing to put Mary through public disgrace despite the initial assumption of scandal that surrounded her pregnancy. Yet Jesus is also born in Bethlehem, an insignificant village in Judah, to a poor family who could only offer the most inexpensive of offerings at his birth. There was nothing in his circumstances that any human could boast in, and he certainly wasn't born into the privilege, wealth or status that we might normally associate with royalty. Everything about his arrival was so countercultural to expectation that it's no wonder he was overlooked and discounted by even his own peers and fellow countrymen. By all accounts, he was nothing special the son of a country carpenter, if even his actual son, as the whispers rumored to a different story, and in this way he represents every single one of us. In his humanity, he felt everything that we feel our stresses fears, struggles, heartbreaks. He understood what it was like to be poor, rejected and marginalised. He understood oppression and abuse of power. Yet he also understood the joy of our humanity, love, family, celebration, hope. As Isaiah 53 verse 2 had prophesied, he appeared to be completely ordinary, and in his complete human ordinariness, he could not have represented us better. Yet despite outward appearances, he was anything but ordinary. In nature, his heart belonged to his father, and his mission was to do his father's will, accomplishing the work that he had given him to do. In him, God was glorified, and in him, mercy and truth had met together, righteousness and peace had kissed each other. Paul, in Romans 1 verses 3-5, through comments, This good news is about his Son, God's Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his human nature, he was a descendant of David. In his spiritual, holy nature, he was declared the Son of God. This was shown in a powerful way when he came back to life. Scripture could not be any clearer that the victory over sin and death was going to be God's, accomplished through the sending of his Son. Sent in the likeness of all of humanity, but in whom dwelt all the fullness of God, only the uniquely special Son of God would be able to overcome and defeat our greatest enemy. There is a world of meaning in what it was to be the Son of God, begotten, not created, spiritual, not earthly. Jesus was enough like us in the ways that mattered, to defeat sin and overcome death on our behalf, but also enough not like us, that a victory could and would be won and that this victory would be God's, not ours. With the arrival of Jesus, the Word made flesh, God with us, we are being invited to think about all that God is in new and breathtaking ways. We are challenged to comprehend the reality that all the goodness and love and compassion and righteousness and truth and mercy that God is took up residence among us. Jesus confirmed that those who had seen him had seen the Father, and that he and his Father were one. He was everything that God is, expressed in human form. God had arrived in the person of his Son. This episode references core biblical theology in relation to salvation, redemption, the nature of Jesus and the truth of God and who he is. However, we should avoid the temptation to merely get stuck in a particular doctrinal position or viewpoint on the subject. To do so is to ignore the reality that not everything that is true can be fully explained, and that the goal of theology is not to acquire knowledge for its own sake, but to gain understanding that not only informs but transforms our faith. Professor of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Wales, Paul Badham, Comments this The word theology literally means thinking about God. One classic definition of theology was given by Saint Anselm. He called it faith seeking understanding, and for many, this is the true function of Christian theology. Our theology, what we think about God, is important. How can we begin to know and understand ourselves and our place in this expanse of creation? if we have no sense of the one who made us and the purpose for which we've been made. However, a robust and living theology will spring from understanding and experiencing who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus, not simply by giving agreement to a statement or creed of theological beliefs. By affirming the biblical narrative that we are saved by grace through faith alone, we begin a journey toward a deeper understanding of who God is which only grows as our Christian life progresses. Our theology is, perhaps then, best described as an expedition of discovery, rather than a destination at which we arrive. We discern more and more about the heart and mind of the Creator as our life progresses. This knowing and experiencing, this walking with God, renews us day by day to become more like the crucified Lord we follow. As Hebrews 1 verse 3, as John 14 verses 10 through 11, and as John 1 verses 1 through 14 tell us, Jesus was the exact representation of God and the very imprint of his nature, the word made flesh who took up residence among us. Paul, in Colossians 1 verse 15, comments this, that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. As John 17 verse 3 points out, to know God is to know Jesus whom he sent, and therefore the true starting point of our theology as Christians is looking to Jesus, and, fundamentally, to God in Jesus crucified. It is in this that we see the extent to which God was prepared to go in order to rescue and redeem us, and why Jesus, and Jesus alone, truly human and truly divine, was the hope of the world. In your pursuit of knowledge, don't lose sight of this miracle.